Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He has the fourth highest batting average of all time. He once hit 398 and was just one hit shy of batting 400. But yet, when you say the name Lefty O'Doul, so few can recall his great contributions to the game of baseball. Maybe that's because his career was so short. After all, he first tried to make it as a pitcher, and the Yankees and later the Red Sox let him waste away on the bench. But once he gave up that dream and focused exclusively on being the best batter he could be, everything changed. And let's not forget about the contributions to professional baseball in Japan. Contributions that ultimately led to a Hall of Fame induction. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the incredible story of Lefty O'Doul. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for tuning in once again. Today, a terrific guest. Dennis Snelling, the author of Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador. And the Lefty O'Doul story is quite something. It's crazy to think that so many have either never heard of Lefty O'Doul or think that that name is fictitious. Well, it's not. And frankly, Lefty O'Doul should be known by every baseball fan and then some. Not only was Lefty O'Doul one of the greatest hitters in the history of the game, he had a career batting average of 349. Not only did Lefty O'Doul set the National League record for most hits in a season with 254, not only did Lefty O'Doul win more than 2,000 games as a minor league manager in the PCL, which at the time, well, was sort of a second major league, but Lefty O'Doul also played a pivotal role in healing relations between the United States and Japan after World War II had ended. Yes, the Lefty O'Doul story is actually quite remarkable, and in just a moment, Dennis Snelling will join me as we take a look back at the career of this magnificent baseball player and human being. First, though, just a reminder that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Every week, I let all of you know about Audible. It really is a terrific way to get your reading in. And if you sign up for a 30-day trial, you get a free download. And Audible sends Sports Forgotten Heroes a little something to keep this podcast going. There's close to 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Give Audible a try, free, at www.audibletrial.com backslash 
SportsFH. Also, don't forget to follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Search for our page on Facebook and get the latest news about Sports Forgotten Heroes at our site, sportsfh.com and if you get a moment please leave us a rating you'd be surprised just how much that means and we'd always love to hear from you visit sportsfh.com click the contact us button and send in suggestions for future shows let us know how we're doing or send in a question again just click contact us when you visit sportsfh.com back to lefty o'dool like i said earlier His story is truly remarkable, and we just can't cover it all. Like the fact that he was Gary Cooper's hitting instructor for the classic about Lou Gehrig, the pride of the Yankees, or that twice he won the PGA Tour's Bing Crosby National Pro-Am. But we will cover a lot and talk about just how great a hitter he was and how he studied his swing and was a terrific hitting instructor and pitching instructor and just how the people of San Francisco respected him and adored him. And joining me now to talk about Lefty is Dennis Snelling, who is the author of Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador. Hey, Dennis, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks so much for joining. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about Lefty. Awesome. Hey, um, Lefty O'Doul, you know, he had a fantastic career. And I think one can only imagine just how much greater it might have been had he not tried to pitch in the major leagues. So let's start there. While most might know Lefty is a terrific hitter, really a guy, I think, with Hall of Fame talent when he was at the plate, why did he pursue pitching so ardently despite not having much success on the mound when he was trying to break through? Well, I think initially he had some success uh, in the Pacific Coast League. And pitcher is kind of the the center of attention, and I, and lefty loved attention. And I think the other piece is that you're in every play of the game, and I think he enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it made him a better hitter too, because he knew pitching. Um, but even from the beginning, uh, there were teams. Uh, a lot of times, he would be used in the outfield on days he wasn't pitching, kind of similar to what you see with uh, Shohei Otani mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so even during his uh, early years with the Coast League, because I think he won more than, I think his record in the minors was something like 52 and 30, something like that. And he, he won as many as 25 games at the top level of the minor leagues as a pitcher. Right. At the same time, he'd be used as a pinch hitter, and I think he hit 320-something that year. Um, and so I think it took some time to convince him. Um, I think... I'm not sure he liked playing defense particularly, uh-huh. um, and that may have been a part of it. But I think he must have enjoyed pitching. It gave him his first success, and it was his biggest success. Um, he really didn't have success of the kind as a hitter that would gain the same attention until much later uh, mm-hmm. when he finally converted in the mid-1920s. What were his strengths and weaknesses as a pitcher, and how much does it help prove the notion that 
there's a huge difference between the majors and the minors. I mean, his minor league career with the San Francisco Seals and I think later with the Salt Lake City Bees, he pitched well, but it really didn't translate to the majors. What kept him from becoming a major league talent as a pitcher? Well, there's some people who, you know, early on, if you read some of the accounts, there are feelings he was a major league level. However, his pitching motion was such that many thought he wouldn't last. And indeed, he did hurt his arm early on. And he had a great curveball. He threw pretty hard when he first started out. But after he hurt his arm, uh, kind of what I could gather is that he just didn't have enough of a fastball to keep people to keep batters honest mm-hmm. and his curveball as one reporter put it was magnificent it could fool every batter once but never fooled any batter twice <laughs> and that kind of uh and then but he he remained stubborn about pitching miller huggins tried uh, when he went to the yankees uh tried to get him to convert but he went you know he went from the low minors to the majors very quickly for that time period mm-hmm. Uh, And so I think he did have uh, talent, but even the scouts at the time felt, uh, you know, the strain on his arm, uh, even early in in his minor league career, he tended to tire in the seventh and eighth innings. There was a feeling that his pitching motion put too much strain on his arm, that even if he had enough talent as a pitcher, he wouldn't have lasted. Mm -hmm. First, he was with the Yankees, and he talked about uh, Miller Huggins, and then he went to the Red Sox. And both teams had, they, well, both teams saw something in him as a pitcher. They kept him around, but they didn't let him play that much. Why? Well, in those days, you had a, a very small roster, and players played pretty much every day, or they didn't play. Um, obviously, Huggins and Frank Chance after him. They really used him mostly in mop-up situations. Um, and, and it was a mystery, actually, to the people at the time. There's a, a section in the book that talks about uh, before his uh, second season with the Yankees. Uh, there were some reporters uh, who were really behind Lefty and couldn't figure out themselves why Huggins wouldn't play him. Mm-hmm. And it could have been partially that Huggins reacted to people trying to tell him to play him. Some of it may have been uh, O'Doul's. Maybe he thought he was going to wait out O'Doul and have O'Doul play in the outfield. There's some, you know, there's some hint of that where O'Doul talks about um, how he had been hard-headed and stubborn and not listened to Huggins about becoming an outfielder. Um, there may have been some feeling that early on, especially when he hurt his arm, that he just needed to rest it and would come around. Um, I think he was considered to have value in playing uh, both ways, but I don't, uh, you know, playing both as a hitter and a pitcher, Mm -hmm. but you'd be hard pressed to find a career that looked like his where he spent three years with the Yankees, full seasons, not on the disabled list, not uh, up and down in the minors, and yet only appeared in 40 something games in three years. Right. I think you'd have to go to the bonus babies of the fifties uh, where sometimes guys had to be kept on rosters for two years and and hardly ever played to find uh, a parallel to that. It's it's very unusual, and I think there's a part of that that is still kind of a mystery, especially his time with the Yankees, and especially after he played two years for them, they sent him back to the PCL for a year and then brought him back and still didn't play him. 
Yeah, it's really strange. And speaking of the PCL, they want it to be another major league. At least that's the way I read it in your in your book. Talk about how good the PCL was back then, how good the competition was, and who some of the greats were that came out of the PCL. Sure. The Pacific Coast League started in 1903, uh, basically by taking a league that was a California league and adding Seattle and Portland to it. And they started out as an outlaw. And in fact, uh, sometimes they would bring major leaguers because their season, because of the weather, sometimes went into November and December, even a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And their seasons would be over 200 games. Yeah, I read that. That's incredible. We're talking about shortening a baseball season. and They're playing over 200 games. (laughs) Exactly. So they kind of had a history of an independent streak. And by the 1920s, when Lefty was was uh, becoming established in the Pacific Coast League, uh, the league had uh, become largely independent in terms of not allowing major league teams just to draft their players. They could hold on to them. And people don't realize the Pacific Coast League, they had owners who had money. Uh, William Wrigley, who owned the Cubs, also owned the Los Angeles Angels. Um, there were a couple of other email sick and uh, Seattle was very wealthy, Paul Fagan in San Francisco. So there were owners of means, um, and they drew out, drew a lot of major league teams mm-hmm. in the twenties, thirties, and forties. And they signed their own players. Joe DiMaggio signed with the San Francisco seals, not a major league team. Ted Williams signed with the San Diego Padres who outbid the St. Louis Cardinals and the New York Yankees to sign him. So in the 1920s, you had a lot of great players who stayed there and the players were kind of stuck there sometimes. And you had the, the Wainer brothers in San Francisco, you had Earl Averill, Mm -hmm. Lefty Gomez Mm -hmm. came uh, originally signed with the seals and played for them in the 1920s. Um, You know, of course you had the DiMaggio brothers in the thirties. Ted Williams came out of there. So they had uh, the ability to sign players, keep them, pay them well. They played in in great conditions. And it was one of the leagues where the rivalries mattered and winning the pennant mattered. It was a big deal. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was the major leagues to people on the West Coast because during that time, until after World War II, there really wasn't a whole lot. There's a lot of empty space between, say, St. Louis, Kansas City, and the West Coast, right? So, right. And you didn't have television. You didn't have so the so while the major leaguers would barnstorm the West Coast each winter, um, this was still their major leagues was seeing these these players. Now, uh, how good was Lefty in the PCL? He was one of its biggest stars. He was very popular from the beginning. Um, again, he led the. Uh, the PCL and wins as a pitcher at one point in 1921, winning 25 games and losing only nine mm-hmm. at two nine game winning streaks. Um, and then uh, he went to the majors again for a couple of years, didn't play much, came back to the PCL and he started out again as a pitcher in Salt Lake city. Right. Um, but then didn't do well. And finally was convinced by uh, his manager and ex Yankees teammate, Duffy Lewis, try the outfield when they had a bunch of injuries and he was a, a success almost right off the bat. He had 392 that first season. Um, 
The next season, he was hitting well over 400 when he got hit by a pitch in September that broke a bone in his elbow. Mm-hmm. He continued to play. Um, he dropped to 375, but had like uh, 70-something doubles and 191 runs batted in. Um, and that got him a shot at the Cubs, which is another interesting story when Joe McCarthy kind of snubbed him and mm-hmm. it's kind of a recurring theme in the book of revenge that lefty gets on Joe, Joe McCarthy. Right. Um, he came back, played two more years in the PCL, winning the most valuable player award in 1927, uh, when he was 30 years old. And that kind of finally catapulted, catapulted him to the major leagues, back to the major leagues, uh, with the New York giants, uh, where he, he finally uh, achieved the stardom that he had, had in the coast league. He finally had that same success in the major leagues. How did the giants acquire his services? He was actually drafted from the seals. Uh, the seals left him unprotected because they felt he was 31 years old and they didn't think anyone would draft him. Um, McGraw was looking for John, John McGraw was looking for a left-handed hitter for the giants. And uh, he'd been looking at a couple other people, uh, but lefty, filled the bill and that's how he became a New York giant. So before we get to what he did with the giants, which was just incredible. And later on with the, uh, uh, the Phillies and so forth, I got to ask you who was Rose Stoltz and why was she such an important person in lefty's life? So lefty went only went to school up through about seventh or eighth grade. And Rose Stoltz was his uh, teacher when he started playing baseball at the school level um, at about 12, 13 years old. And he was very talented. Um, he led his team uh, to the championship game of the, of the city league. And Rose was his coach. Now, in later years, he would exaggerate a little bit and say that Rose Stoltz taught him everything he knew. Rose Stoltz uh, would tell you that wasn't the case, but they did form kind of a bond. Um, Rose really taught him a lot about how to be a man, how to be polite, how to, uh, the bearing a, a young man should have. And he, he would talk to her and he remained close. He grew up in a, a neighborhood of San Francisco called butcher town. And it's mm-hmm. hard to believe that there were actually cowboys riding through the streets of San Francisco well into the 1930s and 40s, <laughs> but it was an area of town. His parents, his father was a butcher and his grandfather before him, and he thought he was going to be a butcher. He worked worked in the butcher shops. And that connection, he always remained connected to that neighborhood, and Rose Stoltz remained in that neighborhood, uh, became a principal of the school, and Lefty would go back every year, visit the school, visit the kids. He loved kids. His kids' days in San Francisco became legendary, the things that he he would do. And he even carried that over to Japan and funded youth baseball teams out of his pocket. And whenever he'd come back to San Francisco, there were all these celebrations when he won his batting titles or when he had the big mm-hmm. hit in the World Series. And Rose Stoltz and those kids would be out to greet him. And basically until she passed away in the 1950s, he would correspond and talk to her uh, regularly. She was kind of a mentor for the kids in the neighborhood, including Lefty and Lefty really never forgot where he was from, where he'd come from and uh, the contributions that she'd made to him growing up. And, and a lot, yeah, 
a lot of the lessons he learned on the field and off the field, appearance, the way you carry yourself, he he learned a lot of that from Rose, and he kept those. He 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 practiced those lessons throughout his life and passed those lessons on, didn't he? Yes, exactly. I mean, one of the big things to Lefty was respect, showing respect, not demanding respect, but showing respect to others, and. He taught that to his own players. He would teach them uh, when he was later managing the SEALs. He would talk to them about what it means to be a major leaguer and how to treat the public and kids and the press. He worked mm-hmm. with Joe DiMaggio on on uh, the ways on how to treat the press. Probably mixed results there, but uh, people did see an improvement. And a, a lot of that came from, from Rose Stoltz. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read so much about players of the early 1900s whose parents, their father, their mother, whomever, were not very supportive of them playing baseball or football, whatever their sport of choice was, at least not on a professional level. But that wasn't the case with Lefty. Why was his father so supportive? And and tell us about Lefty's upbringing and what life was like for him in the San Francisco area in the early 1900s. It must have been a blast seeing cowboys walking, uh, you know, riding around. Well, he, you know, yes. And he really wanted to be a cowboy. After he left school, he really spent his time doing that and chasing, uh, you know, being interested in girls more than baseball, as he put it. And his father was a big baseball fan, but he really didn't play much baseball between the time that he left school and until he was uh, basically 19 years old. And his father was a big baseball fan mm-hmm. and got him to come out and play for the, uh, the native sons of California, which is kind of a historical group, uh, California, sort of like a version of the Odd Fellows or something like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, had a, a Sunday baseball league, and they were looking for a pitcher. And Lefty's dad brought him out to the the game, and he ended up uh, they needed a pitcher, and he ended up pitching and threw a shutout right off the bat, and just continued uh, with success, and that kind of got him hooked to play. But he really wanted, and he wanted to be a cowboy, and you would see it you'll see pictures of him dressed up as a cowboy in later years and mm-hmm. he would come out on a horse and things like that. He, again, he kept, always kept that connection uh, to his uh, younger years when it was, uh, you know, riding horses and things like that, which you would not think of a person, a native San Franciscan <laughs> being that interested in that kind of stuff. Now, before we go any further, Let's turn our attention for a moment to Japan. I mean, after all, Japan and Japanese baseball are such a large part of the Lefty O'Doul story, his legacy. When or how did he become so enamored with Japan, the Japanese people, and in turn, the Japanese with Lefty? Well, uh, he first went over in 1931. Uh, with an all-star team that was put together that the Japanese originally hoped Babe Ruth would be a part of. He did not go, but Lou Gehrig went, Al Simmons, Lefty Grove. And Lefty uh, was coming off uh, seasons where he'd hit 398 for the Phillies, 383 for the Phillies, and I think 336 for Brooklyn. And uh, so he was invited to go over, and he was injured early on um and 
the thing that hurt him as much was he couldn't play golf because he's an, also a tremendous golfer. Yeah. But I think yeah. he you enjoyed to that a couple times in your book. <laughs> yes. He um, was a great belief in self-education and he loved learning about places and going places. And I think Japan was, was so different. I think it caught his attention as to why he became so enamored of Japan. He was never really explicit in talking about that, but I think there are hints that he gives along the way. And, and some of it has to do with, he loved coaching, whether it's coaching kids or coaching players, probably more than anything he did. And he found the Japanese really receptive to that. Um, again, hmm. re and respect is a big part of Japanese culture. And I think he was drawn to that. Mm -hmm. But he would talk about how, uh, you know, in his later years, he got a little bitter at times and would talk about how, you know, an American kid doesn't want to listen to coaching. They think they know it all, and the, whereas the Japanese will listen and I think that was part of it is that it was easy for him to coach and impart and teach. And those are the things that I think he really loved. And he loved the idea, I think, of bringing these people along. And so he, he went back in 1932, basically, to, to coach college uh, players. He went along with Ted Lyons and Mo Berg mm -hmm. uh, and then finally got Ruth to come over in 1934, which was a tremendous tour. Right. He wasn't able to play because the national league would not uh, support the tour. Only American leaguers played, but he still came along mm -hmm. and played a big part in organizing that. I think just over time, uh, the Japanese recognized he respected them and they respected his knowledge and saw him as someone they could learn from and, and the friendships that he developed just deepened over that time. And, and I think that's a lot of the reason. Mm -hmm. How dangerous was it for baseball players to be there during the early barnstorming trips of the 1930s? What was going on behind the scenes as the Americans barnstormed there with the likes of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Lefty Grove and, uh, uh, you know, Lefty Gomez? What was it like, and how dangerous was it for the Americans to be there? Was it dangerous? It's hard to say how, how dangerous it was for them, but it was a dangerous place in a lot of ways. You had real struggles uh, in uh, wings of the Japanese uh, society and government, some whom wanted to go on a war footing and some were more friendly to the West. And there was a constant battle. There were constant assassinations going on in 1930 and 31 attempts on uh, then Prince Hirohito's life. Uh, and uh, the prime minister of Japan was assassinated not too long after uh, the Americans left. In 1934, Rob Fitz, in his book, Bonsai Babe Ruth, uh, excellent book on the 1934 tour, mm -hmm. talks about that there was actually a coup attempted, uh, attempt that was thwarted in the midst of the tour that Babe Ruth was on. Uh, and so what if that had been successful, then maybe that would have resulted in some danger for the Americans. Uh, but they were completely unaware that any of this was going on. So to them, it didn't seem dangerous at all. And it, it's difficult to say, but um, it was an uncertain time in an uncertain place. 
Now, you said that he, he convinced Babe Ruth to go over there or Babe Ruth somehow eventually joined the barnstorming tours over there but couldn't play. But, but he and Babe Ruth had a pretty good relationship. How did that develop? Well, it started when they were teammates on the Yankees. So uh, Odul's second year with the Yankees was the year that Ruth was traded over there. And so they got to be good friends. They would go to Coney Island sometimes together with Ruth's wife. Um, they played golf. Uh, Ruth kind of introduced Odul to golf, and then they played golf all over the country. In fact, at one point when Odul was first starting to talked to Ruth about the idea of going to Japan. Uh, they met on the golf course in San Francisco along with the press. And there's a picture mm -hmm. in the book of that happening in uh, 1933. So I think they were just kindred spirits and enjoying life. Uh, I don't think Ruth ever met a stranger anyway. <laughs> and Odul was much the same way. Uh, yeah. Everybody, you know, he knew everybody. The difference is I think Odul would know him by name. Ruth just... You know, he he just uh, basked in celebrity. All right, so let's get back to American baseball. Lefty didn't get back to the majors, as you stated before, till he was 31, and man, could he hit. In his first full season with the Giants, he hit 319, and he followed that by batting an incredible 398 with the Phillies in 1929. Did he possibly sacrifice a Hall of Fame career in his attempt to be a pitcher? Did he regret not giving up on pitching earlier? I think he did regret it to an extent, but I'm not sure he would have been who he was if he if he had uh, quit earlier. Um, and I guess... That's because we all have a life that we go through and those things affect the other things and you don't know what would have happened. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think he was a Hall of Fame caliber hitter. I think when he was in the Coast League and having those numbers that I was talking about, he there wasn't free agency. Um, there wasn't trading between the minor and major leagues. He wasn't uh, on a major league contract playing in the minors. He was stuck there. Uh -huh. And I think there's no doubt he was playing major league caliber ball in the PCL. He just didn't have the opportunity to do it in the majors because he was stuck in the Pacific Coast League. Mm -hmm. um, but it translated. If you look at his batting averages in the Coast League, he turned around and hit as well or better in the major league. So I think he was or he was a major league hitter probably three years before he got to the majors. And if you added those seasons, I think uh, he'd certainly be a very strong Hall of Fame candidate. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah, I mean, in the PCL, I mean, he put on crazy displays of hitting. Well, yeah, he went 19 for 20 in one stretch. Uh, I think he went six for six three times in the PCL. Uh but yeah, he had, uh, I, I think it was a 19 for 20 stretch, including 11 straight hits. Wow. Uh, when he got on a streak, there was no one like him. There was a streak he had in Brooklyn where uh, he hit almost 500 for a month. He did it in the Coast League where he hit 500 for a whole month. And w when he got hot, there was no one like him. And he hit the ball hard. Uh, these weren't blue pits or place hits. Uh, although he was 
pretty good at hitting the ball where he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I said, with the Phillies, he drove in 122 runs, batting second in the order all season. Wow. And and here's a stat that you won't find anymore. He hit 32 home runs, and he struck out only 19 times. Yeah, you know, I have that written down here. Uh, you know, how special, uh, you know, that that kind of stat is. I mean, he regularly struck out less times than he hit home runs. Yes, I think I think four or five times he did that in the major leagues. That's just it's an incredible thing. So he started off with the Yankees, then to the Red Sox. How did he get to the Red Sox from the Yankees? And then why did the Red Sox not give him uh, a shot like the uh, you know to pitch again? He's with a team and he's sitting on the bench. He went in a trade to the Red Sox from the Yankees. And then the Red Sox, uh, Frank Chance was fired at the end of the season. They had a new owner and a new manager come in. And the new manager wasn't that big a fan of Lefty. So they sent him to Salt Lake City and he went back to the Coast League. Mm-hmm. So that that's how that happened. And then he ends up on the Giants. And when he first gets to the Giants, his manager, John McGraw, doesn't think he could hit lefties. And and how did, how did Lefty prove McGraw wrong and at what point did McGraw actually give him that shot to prove him wrong? Well, McGraw never did give him that shot. He, uh, I think McGraw only started him against left-handers four times in that year with New York. Hmm. And after the season, the Giants traded him to the Phillies for another outfielder that they thought could play against lefties and righties, a guy named Fred Leach. Mm-hmm. He was a pretty solid ball player. And Lefty went to Philadelphia where Bert Schotten, the manager there, mm-hmm. told him, you're going to play every day. And so Lefty just went on a tear from day one. And they're playing the New York Giants the first time in. And he's hitting against Carl Hubble, has hits his first two times up. And when he's getting ready to go up for the third time, he <laughs> kind of just screams out, I cannot hit left-handers. <laughs> So that McGraw could hear him, and then he promptly went up and lined his third hit of the game. <laughs> yeah, he really liked sticking it to McGraw. Why did the Giants trade Lefty O'Doul to the Philadelphia Phillies? It was mostly because McGraw didn't didn't like his defense. Felt uh, he wound up like a pitcher when he threw from the outfield, and Lefty did not have a good arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he hurt his arm, he he just could not throw well. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it was defense and McGraw's lack of confidence that he could play every day. And I'm sure after the 1928 season and 1929, Lefty's about to turn 32. I'm sure that played a factor in it as well. He thought Leach was uh, 28 years old. Ironically, Leach was lying about his age and was almost exactly the same age as Lefty, but hmm. they didn't know that at the time. So he thought thought he was gaining a younger player who could play against all comers. And ironically, if you look at Leach's stats in 1929, they're almost exactly what lefties were in 1928. Which weren't the worst. And he he hit 100 points less than lefty did (laughs) with the Phillies. So it was not one of the better trades the Giants and John McGraw made. No, not at all. You know, another thing that came through is 
just how superstitious a guy Lefty O'Doul was. I mean, he would eat the same meal day after day after day if he was on a hot streak. His wife wouldn't move certain things around if Lefty intentionally placed something somewhere or left something someplace. Talk about some of his superstitions and just how superstitious a guy he was. Well, he used to like to wear green especially once he got to Philadelphia and he eventually became known as the man in the green suit. He would, he'd wear green ties, green jackets, green underwear. Uh, even though he was always billed as Irish, ironically, he was half German and only a quarter Irish. Uh, but he, he played up his Irish heritage and that was part of it. Uh, part of it. Uh, I remember a spider was a good luck charm and some player was going to, uh, kill a spider in front of his locker and he, he stopped him. Um, he talked a little bit about with his wife, I mean, in certain places, I don't think lefty, uh, he would toss his glove out on the field. And if it turned a certain way, he felt he was going to get a hit. <laughs> but I think for lefty, it wasn't so much that the act itself would do it. It was that the act put himself in the frame of mind he needed to be. Mm-hmm. And one of the things lefty preached was that, being relaxed and confident were the two things you had. you couldn't go up there and hit if you were afraid or if you were uncertain. And I think he felt these things put him, uh, maybe it's more of an OCD type of thing, mm-hmm. trying to take control. Uh, and it was these things that would put him in the right frame of mind more than it was that the acts themselves uh, created an outcome, if that makes sense. Talk a little more about the 1929 season. I mean, it was really an incredible year. He hit 398, really flirted with 400. I think he was, what, one hit shy of batting 400? Just how special a season was 1929 for Lefty O'Doul? Well, he said that the ball looked like a balloon that year. And he went and played in the Baker Bowl. Uh, and he looked at that short right field fence, which is kind of a recurring theme in his career in San Francisco that had a very short right field fence, uh, polo grounds had a very short right field fence. So it was really made for him in a lot of ways. And he felt he could almost just reach out and hit that ball off that, uh, tin sign, the life boy sign out there in right field anytime he wanted. Um, and I think another thing that's interesting is he hit 398? He had only one month he hit below 400. And I think he hit 280 something in June, and that cost him as well. But he still ended up with just one hit shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what is uh, interesting is he didn't get to bat against the worst pitching staff in the National League, which was his own Phillies pitching staff, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which had a, a collective earn run average of well over six. And so despite that handicap, you know, you wonder if he'd hit off Phillies pitchers instead of yeah. some other teams, yeah. he might've hit 420, but it was a tremendous season. And, uh, you know, it really made him a star. He started getting endorsements, uh, doing advertising. He was extremely popular in Philadelphia and the team actually had come off one of the worst seasons in national league history and bounded up into fourth place. And he got a lot of uh, uh, credit for that for, you know, when it certainly wasn't the pitching staff and he helped coach Chuck Klein, who became a hall of famer, uh, worked with him. It was one of his first pupils as a, as a great hitting instructor. 
and uh, really helped. The Phillies had some good young offensive talent and uh, were able to make a, a bit of a move that year. And uh, as uh, after being perennial tail enders for more than a decade. But Dennis, it wasn't enough for the Phillies to keep him. They no, he was no, like their only marketable player, and they ended up trading him. How tough was it for Philly to trade him, and how difficult was it for Lefty to accept the trade? Um, I think he was okay going to Brooklyn. He liked New York, and he was going to a place that that really wanted him. He wasn't crazy about hitting at Ebbets Field. He'd always had some some trouble there. But Brooklyn at the time was a contending ball club. Mm-hmm. In Lefty's second year, he hit 383, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and and basically knocked single-handedly knocked the Cubs out of the pennant race. Uh, again, as kind of a uh, revenge against Joe McCarthy cutting him in spring training in 1926 with the Cubs. Um, there's a great a uh, picture of him uh, coming around on a home run and with the Bat Boys there standing there to greet him, which he had o- always staged in how they should greet him for a home run <laughs> uh, so that the, it would make a good photograph. And uh, so, but the Phillies really slumped in 1930 and they went back to the bottom and Brooklyn was looking for a player who could be the face of the franchise. Mm-hmm. So and Philly, Philadelphia had plenty of hitting. They felt they needed pitching. Lefty was now about to turn uh, 34 years old, and he was felt it was felt he was the most marketable player they'd get the most from, and still have plenty of offense and maybe add a pitcher or two. So he was off to uh, Brooklyn at that point, and um, he almost immediately Brooklyn just loved him, mm-hmm. and I think that helped the transition. He was a hit immediately with them and started a youth uh, baseball team that he financed out of his own pocket. And, uh, you know, Brooklyn fans were much more positive about the players than Phillies fans, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think was true all through their history. So I think he responded to that. And he was, um, I guess, ahead of his time in a way because he took notes and when there was film of him hitting, he would study that film. Um, how ahead of his time was he? How revolutionary was he? I think he was one of the first players to use film. And it goes back to, there's an interesting little piece of, of a film that doesn't exist anymore, and there's very little information on it. But before he went to the Yankees the first time back in 1919, he was actually filmed in a series of slow motion studies. And these were popular at the time. Slow motion film had just been kind of was being experimented with. And so they would show various athletic endeavors, whether it was horse racing or or people throwing pitches, things like that, to show what it looked like in slow motion. And these things would be shown uh, as part of a, a in movie theaters as part of a, you know, a, mm-hmm. kind of a pre a pre feature to the main feature. And so I think that stuck with him. And so, you know, when you get into the 1930s, you'll see, yes, he kept books on every pitcher uh, that he faced. He would uh, try to get films of himself hitting. He would film other players uh, as time went on into the time he was managing in the Coast League. He regularly filmed other players Mm -hmm. uh, to show them as examples uh, in coaching. So, yes, he was one of the first 
to recognize uh, the value of film and to use it. And he wasn't afraid to ask others, especially when he was slumping, which was very rare, but he wasn't afraid to ask others to help him if they saw something in his swing. He was still a, a he was a scientific hitter before Ted Williams was the scientific hitter, was he not? Yes. Uh, and he was noted at that time that that's the way that he was. Um, yes, he would, if he made an out, he wanted to know why. He would ask, you know, everybody, what happened there? What, did you see anything? Uh, that I did wrong. He always wanted to know why he didn't get a hit. He was one of those, he was very competitive, even though he's a pretty easygoing guy. Generally, he was very competitive in the sense that he felt he should get a hit every time up. And if he didn't, he wanted to know why he ended up back on the giants. Did he not? Yes, he did. He's, he spent two and a half years with Brooklyn. Um, they, uh, after his big seasons, they actually changed the ball in the National League. They raised the seams, which brought batting averages down. Yet he still uh, he hit 336 his first year in Brooklyn and actually broke Jim Thorpe's record for fastest man down to first base, which is incredible. And you think it was Jim Thorpe whose record he broke and the fact he was 34 years old at the time that he did it. Wow. And then the next year, he hit 368 and won his second batting title with Brooklyn. Wow. But in 1933, uh, he got off to a really slow start. He was 36 years old, and there's not a lot of patience back in those days with players once they got to their mid-30s. Um, and he went to New York and played very well the second half of the season. He was named to the National League All-Star team. Uh, he was voted on the – this was the very first All-Star game. Right, 1933. 33, correct. To be on it. It was – Correct. Uh, yeah. And uh, John McGraw came out of retirement to manage that team, and he he pinch hit in that. But um, he ended up platooning again w with New York. Kind of, it seemed like every time he went to the Giants, he, they would platoon him, <laughs> even though he showed he could hit everywhere else. But he played a big role down the stretch, and then had a, a he was a hero in uh, Game Two of the uh, 1933 World Series in what he considered. Uh, the greatest moment of his career when he had a, a two-run pinch hit single and ended up coming around scoring in what uh, he sparked a six-run inning that basically broke open that game and put the Giants in control of that series. And uh, to the end of his time uh, on earth, he considered that uh, his favorite and greatest moment. Can you talk about that, that at bat? Yeah, he he was kind of depressed because... He didn't play in the first game of the World Series. He wasn't expected to play much, if at all. And he had gone through this with the Yankees. Uh, he'd been on uh, the World Series team uh, in 1922 um, and sat the whole time. And now 11 years later, he was getting another chance at a World Series, and it looked like the same thing was going to happen where he wouldn't get into a single game. And in the mid, I think it was the fourth inning, uh, the Giants loaded the bases, and Bill Terry was the playing manager, and he was actually on second base, and he called time and asked O'Doul to hit. Now, again, O'Doul wasn't sure he was going to get in the game, and his wife had actually tried to encourage him to wear his lucky green jacket, which mm -hmm. he was kind of refusing to do. He said it's not going to make any difference anyway, but she encouraged him to, to do so as kind of a superstition, 
And sure enough, he got the opportunity. Um, he got the count to two strikes and barely fouled a ball off. And that again goes back to, he was asking uh, Travis Jackson in the on deck circle, uh, how did I miss that pitch? He couldn't figure out how he, he missed it, but the catcher didn't hold on to the ball, which gave him another chance. And he, uh, as he called leveled on that ball mm-hmm. later, he would say, I probably stepped across the plate, but I wasn't going to mention it. And the umpire didn't say anything. <laughs> and, uh, he lined a single right where he wanted to hit it. He said it was like running on clouds down to first base. Uh, at the end of the inning, uh, they replaced him for defensive purposes and, he, uh, there were people who jumped out onto the field. You'd never see this kind of stuff today. Patting him on the back as he went mm. to the clubhouse. Cause in the polo grounds, you had to walk through, uh, the middle of the field to get to the clubhouse. Right. And, uh, you know, then he went in and basically, uh, cried in the clubhouse. Uh, he was so overcome and being able to do that. It was just a great, great moment and a moment, uh, that, uh, was celebrated when he came back to San Francisco after the series with Joe Cronin, who had starred for Washington and was also a San Francisco native. Thousands of people came out to greet him. There were, there were uh, pictures, motion pictures playing at all the theaters of the, of the hit he had. They had the bat on display. He mm-hmm. just came home to a big hero's welcome. It has really cemented that as, as a really big moment in his life. And then 1934 happens, and it winds up being his final season. How bittersweet was it, especially his last at bat, and not knowing it was to be his last at bat in the major leagues? Yeah, his last at bat, he 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 came up as a pinch hitter and kind of uncharacteristically uh, took three strikes without taking a bat off his shoulder, which never happened. He hardly ever struck out. And he almost never struck out looking. He he was like Williams in the sense that he had a great eye. And rarely, he and Ted Williams had very similar views. Get a good pitch to hit. Look for your fastball first. And uh, look for a zone and swing when you get it. And so it was very unusual for him to take three pitches for strikes. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, his final official at bat, he was uh, uh, announced go up and then when they replaced the pitcher they replaced him so he actually didn't see any pitches and that was his last appearance in a box score so it was kind of interesting uh i point out that the end of his career was kind of went went out like a whimper like it came in Mm. a whimper where he wasn't playing much and uh, wasn't getting much opportunity and the same thing happened at the very end it was kind of uh, ironic the book ending of his career that way mm-hmm. and he really only played six full years in the major leagues can he be considered one of the greatest hitters of all time well i think it depends on how you measure it if you want to say during those six years was he one of the greatest hitters of all time yes if you're saying should he be in the Hall of Fame only for his hitting? I think that's a little more difficult. You know, some people have used Dizzy Dean as kind of a corollary. That Dean had five or six really good years. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, to get to 10 and 11 years, he was playing a game here, a game there. Um, and I think there may be some validity to that. But um, the truth is, he, although he has the fourth highest lifetime batting average of all time at 349, um, he has less than a thousand hits. I think he has 970 hits in the major yeah, league. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that his minor league hitting career is almost exactly the same 
as his major league career. I'm sorry, he played 970 games. I think he had 1140 hits, mm-hmm, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but you know, he I think he had 352 in the minors and 349 in the majors with almost exactly the same number of at bats. Wow, somewhere around 3,500 at bats, which is what I mean by saying. Since there wasn't a drop off, I think it can be argued in those minor league seasons he was playing major league level ability, right? But he wasn't playing against major league competition, and that's what counts. I think, as far as Hall of Fame, I think the problem there is the Hall of Fame only looks at your playing career and not your contributions to the game. When you look at his contributions to youth baseball, when you look at his contributions to being hitting instruction. And pitching instruction. People forget he was a great pitching instructor too. He mm-hmm. saved some. Uh, he was a big influence on several pitchers. Uh, one of the few guys who could do both. And then when you throw in Japan, uh, when you take the totality, I think he should be in there. But that's not the measure that that Cooperstown uses. Now at the end of thirty four, that was his last at bat. But he's still planned on playing in 35, but he wound up being a player manager of the San Francisco Seals instead. What happened? What stopped him from going back to the majors and staying in San Francisco, his home, and becoming a player manager there? Well, I think I think his time had just run out with the Giants. Bill Terry was not uh, really enamored of him. You couldn't count on him. The Giants were a contender. They won the pennant in 33. Uh, They almost won it in 34 with the famous Bill Terry, uh, is Brooklyn still in the league thing with the Cardinals catching them (laughs) on the last weekend, uh, you know, thanks to the Dean brothers. And and they lost to Brooklyn and, and were knocked out. So they were a contending ball club. And again, rosters were, this was the middle of the depression. Rosters were small and every roster position was precious and lefty was going to be 38 years old. He really couldn't play every day anymore. His body just wouldn't hold up to do that. Even if he was playing every day. Um, and that's really what happened. And he wanted to go back to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He, this was like his fifth stint uh, with the seals already. And he looked forward to managing. I think that intrigued him. It was kind of a new thing to do. And he was going to be a player manager, but the Seals ultimately had enough talent. He didn't need to do that. And he Mm -hmm. also injured himself early on, nothing serious, but enough to kind of tell him, you know, your body just won't let you go out there every day. So he had Joe DiMaggio, another guy named Joe Marty, who played in the major leagues, and another guy named Ted Norbert, who had a very long and successful minor league career in the Mm -hmm. high minors. And so he really didn't need to play every day. But when he played, he played well. Okay, so he he did. He played well, um, and he's he's a player manager for the San Francisco Seals for quite some time. And now let's jump ahead a little. After the horrors of World War II, General MacArthur was, well, I guess to a certain extent, charged with helping to repair our, meaning the U.S., relations with Japan— and he turned to Lefty O'Doul to help with certain aspects of this. And O'Doul's mission in 1949, I think it was 1949, was huge. He had to help build the morale of the Japanese people. 
tell me about that, how it fell on Odul's shoulders and how daunting a task it was and how involved or how important was this to General MacArthur? So Odul, after that 34 tour, he kept going over to Japan. And in fact, at the end of the 34 tour, he helped uh, establish professional baseball in Japan. He named the Tokyo Giants uh, and helped recruit the players to play for them. Of course, Japanese professional baseball kind of faded away during the war. Lefty continued going over till about 1938 when it just got too dangerous for Americans to be in mm-hmm. Japan. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty upset about the whole uh, situation. Um, and so, but, but right after the war, he was, he was in Japan within a couple of months of the surrender, going over and trying to look up old friends and see how things uh, were going. And the Japanese remembered him. And he kept trying to organize tours, but would be turned down. Finally, in 1949, Douglas MacArthur uh, who was basically in charge of Japan at the time was getting very worried about uh, communism making inroads or real shortages of food. Morale was down. Uh, The communists were really making their pitches and starting to make some inroads in with the population. And MacArthur was asking his folks, what can we do to improve morale? And uh, there was one young uh, Japanese American, um, named Cappy Harada, who suggested uh, baseball as, to, uh, as as a means of doing that. Uh, Harada had been tasked, uh, along with a, a general named uh, William Marquat, to bring sports back in Japan and had some success in reestablishing the, the Japanese leagues and, and getting the college players playing again and refurbishing ball fields, but it wasn't quite enough. And the feeling was let's bring uh, a baseball team over and Harada suggested Odul and, and MacArthur went along with it. And so Harada came and talked to Odul who again had been trying to get over there anyway. And instead of bringing an all-star team, he just wanted to bring the seals. Mm-hmm. And when he came mm-hmm. over, I mean, by some accounts, there were a million people lining the streets. Um, this was a big event. It was the biggest event since 34 when Ruth, had come by far. Ruth had died by then of cancer the year before. Mm-hmm. So Adul was probably the biggest name the Japanese still knew in baseball. Was, uh, and so he came over, brought the team, and spent much of the time coaching not only uh, – let's go back to the Rose Stoltz uh, example. Uh-huh. He, was not, he came over and did the same thing, not only teaching them sports, but teaching them – uh, other life lessons, one of the major things was that really struck the Japanese was when he moved all the soldiers out of the good seats during one of the games and had all the Japanese orphans come to the game for free and sit in the good seats. And that really struck the Japanese as a way to look at life. And they compared what they would have done if they had been in charge. And it was, you know, studying hard, things like that. Um mm-hmm. You know, and and ways to to help each other, and and build that bridge. And baseball was part of it, but it was also about uh, about life, and about fairness, and about helping people who were down and not kicking them when they were down, and and showing that respect that we're talking about. And it made it. You know, it was not only the baseball part, which also had a big influence, 
but it was just how he treated them and how he respected them and and how he was really rooting for them. And I think that that made a big impression on them and, and really helped start building that bridge in between the United States and Japan. The very first game was the first time the Japanese and American flags had flown together uh, since the war. And it was a really emotional moment for everybody. And so the, it, w- it went beyond baseball. It was really baseball's diplomacy mm-hmm. uh, during that tour in 1949. Yeah, I think you said or you quoted someone who said that he was really a great ambassador. Yes, Douglas MacArthur actually called it the greatest piece of diplomacy ever. When Lefty first got there, they went to Douglas MacArthur's home, all the ball players and Lefty. And, and MacArthur had already recognized what Lefty meant to the Japanese and said, you've come home. And at the end of the tour... Uh, he said all the diplomats put together couldn't have done this. This is the greatest stroke of diplomacy ever in the history of the United States. Um, that's that's just an unbelievable compliment. Yeah, and I think it was, you know, one of the things that I was able to to do is get translations of the Japanese newspaper articles of the time. So I was able to get uh, the Japanese perspective of what happened on that trip, not just what the American press was mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, you really saw because I, I had questioned, you know, is this just the Americans' version of what you see? But the Japanese, when you look at the articles that they wrote and the commentaries, uh, uh, both of the game and of Lefty, um, you realize what an impact he really did have on them. And ultimately, as a result of that, he ended up being inducted into the Japanese Hall of Fame. Right, right. We were going to get to that in just a little bit, but I'm so glad you brought that up. Because this had just the most incredible impact on the legacy of Lefty O'Doul. Has there ever been such a thing in the U.S.? Is there anything that you could compare what happened in Japan to anything that has happened here in the U.S.? I don't know if there's anything that can be compared. I can't think of anything offhand. I mean, at the time when it was going on, people would compare it to, uh, you know, ticker tape parades of, you know, Lindbergh and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as the impact on that population, come up with something similar, but it's, it's difficult, uh, I think to come up with something in this country that happened that had that same kind of impact. You know, he, he, he did all those barnstorming tours and visited Japan so many times before World War II. Then he goes back after World War II. And with all that had happened, the people of Japan revered him. They remembered him. And they had taken so much of what he taught them, of what he told them to do, and they had implemented it as they tried to create their own major league. Again, I ask, why was there such a special relationship between Lefty O'Doul and the people of Japan? I think, uh, you know, that's that's difficult to answer. It's sort of like, you know, what are, why do these connections happen? I think, I think a lot of it just had to do with Lefty being the right person with the right message at the right time. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese were open to wanting to improve at a time when Lefty was there to be willing to improve and not to understand their culture and not impose his own. But at the same time, he would be honest with them and say, you know, you don't measure up in this way or that way, or you shouldn't conduct yourself in this way or that way. But he knew how to approach them because he understood them well enough. He took that time to understand them as a people and understand them as individuals. Um, If you look at Lefty's life, he had a very strong affinity for dealing with people who were down and out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying the Japanese were that way, but he related to people where they were. I think that's why they liked him everywhere he went. In San Francisco, it was said that you couldn't walk down, you never wanted to walk down the street with Lefty because you couldn't walk down the street (laughs) with Lefty. It wasn't a walk, it was a series of interruptions because everybody would come up and want to talk to him. You know, and I think... That just translated, and it was the same way in Japan, where he just had that gift of being able to connect with people as to who they are, where they were, be empathetic to their situation, and be able to make those one-on-one connections. You just see it, I think, over and over in the book. Mm -hmm. And it, it lives on into the foundation that uh, has his name attached to it today that helps underprivileged kids and what he did with his restaurant where he'd open it up uh, to the underprivileged uh, on Thanksgiving and Christmas and give free meals away and things like that, that he was genuine. He lived that he just loved people. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, I think sometimes people there, some people get drained by dealing with other people. I think people energize lefty. I think I talk about that Mm -hmm, a little mm -hmm. bit. And he was one of those rare people, I think that could connect to individuals in in that way. And it fed into what his strengths were as a teacher and as a person who loved to learn. And as a person who was generally interested in, uh, in doing good things. Yeah, he was sort of like the 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 grandfather, or at least the great uncle of Japanese baseball. Um, oh, definitely. How, how good a hitting instructor was he? I mean, what made him so good at it, and and how special did it make him feel to know that even when he was a with the San Francisco Seals, there were teams in the major leagues that would send young players to him to learn how to hit. I mean, this guy's eye, his knowledge of hitting was just incredible. And yeah, it translated over into Japan and here in the States, the majors, they knew he was special. Right. I mean, uh, there's a story in there uh, about Babe Dahlgren coming and uh, working on hitting with him. Jack Wallacey, who was a, a shortstop that Connie Mack had, that um, they sent him for a day of instruction with Lefty. He's, he basically uh, saved Gene Woodling's career. Uh, Gene Woodling was a struggling ball player. He came and played for the Seals in 1948. Lefty turned him around, and he always gave Lefty the credit uh, for, he had, I think, 308 times after in the majors after uh, being with Lefty. Of course, Lefty was a tremendous influence, especially on Dominic DiMaggio, mm-hmm. um, who called him the definitely the greatest hitting instructor 
he ever uh, worked with. Um, of course, both uh, Ted Williams uh, used a lot of lefty's philosophy in building his own. Uh, not that Ted needed much help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, Joe DiMaggio, as much in how to deal with major league life, actually, when one of the reasons the SEALs wanted uh, Lefty to come in 1935 had to do with uh, Joe DiMaggio was basically getting ready to be delivered to the Yankees after one more season. He played two seasons in San Francisco. And a lot of it was, okay, Joe was pretty much a, finish, a, a finished hitter. In fact, when he was 18 years old, he had a 61-game hitting streak in the Pacific Coast League. Right. Uh, so the 56, he'd done that before uh, by the time he got there. Uh, but Lefty was as much to teach him how to be a major leaguer, what major, what to expect, especially in New York, because Lefty had been there. Um, and yes, to work with him some on hitting. But Charlie Graham, who was the owner of the Seals, really cared about his players, and he wanted Joe to be successful and thought lefty was a person who could help him with that. And really lefty and Joe hit it off and were friends pretty much the rest of uh, lefty's life for the next 30, 35 years. Right. And you tell a touching story about when, uh, lefty was basically on his deathbed. Uh, he, he and Joe had had a falling out of some sort and somebody let Joe know that lefty was in bad shape and, didn't take very long for Joe to pick up a phone and give Lefty a call to lift his spirits. Right. That was a, a really interesting story and, and one that uh, I think, you know, I think meant a lot to Lefty. Did Lefty get a fair shake in the majors? No, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think you can sit on a bench for three years and never play. But how much of that was Lefty's fault and how much of that was the team's fault? That's that's tough to say when you're looking back uh, now nearly 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, all you can go by is is news reports uh, and people. A lot of the stories, uh, maybe 10, 15 years after the fact, even in the newspaper. Um, but, you know, there were certainly reporters there who didn't feel he was getting a fair shake and didn't understand it at the time. There were. There were those who really thought he could be Ty Cobb. Even when he was a pitcher, there were people talking about how good a hitter he could be. And they weren't really far wrong. If you look at some of his seasons, weren't far off some of Ty Cobb's seasons. So they weren't just being silly when they were saying that. And they saw that when he was 22, 23 years old and asking, why isn't this guy hitting and playing? And yet the Yankees wouldn't play him in either way, pitching or hitting. And so that's a bit of a mystery uh, as to why that is. And I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say he didn't get a good shake in those early years. And it's it really cost him a lot. And it's, like I said, try to find a career that parallels his. I don't think you'll find one. He has the most unusual major league career, yeah. I would say, yeah. of anyone I've ever seen. What kind of manager was he, and and did he do himself a disservice by dedicating himself to only managing in the minors, where he managed the Seals, the the San Diego Padres of the PCL, the Oakland Oaks, instead of fighting harder to become the manager of the New York Giants? Well, I think part of it is he was in a situation in San Francisco where he could basically – 
do as he wanted. He knew if he went to the major leagues, he would not be able to just call the shots the way that he wanted to, that that was bigger business. It was a different game, not in, in level of play as much. There wasn't that big a gap at that time, but I think, um, I don't know if it was being a big fish in a small pond or, or what, but I think, yeah, I think he ended up regretting because he turned down several opportunities to manage two or three with the giants. Um, one with the Dodgers, one mm-hmm. with the Yankees, mm-hmm. uh, a big, his last big chance was with the Philadelphia A's in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time he finally decided that he wanted to manage in the majors, his t- time had kind of passed him by. And I think he did regret that. As a manager, he was very unorthodox. He played to the crowd quite a bit, uh, really loved revving up the crowd. Um, he had this rally hanky, so, sort of like the terrible towels <laughs> you see with the yeah. Pittsburgh Steelers. He was uh-huh. doing that in the 1930s. And um, he was a showman. Uh, he, you know, from his kids' days, which you read about in the book, the the shows he'd put on for mm-hmm. for kids mm-hmm. to uh, just uh, you know uh, pretending to gallop to bring in Alan Gettle as a pitcher because Alan Gettle always wanted to be a cowboy star, and so you know he would do things to play up to the crowd. He was very aggressive on the bases as a manager. Uh, hated sacrifice bunts same mm-hmm. way as John McGraw did. Hated double plays, which no, I don't think any manager loves them. Unless <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. You know, on unless defense. you're turning it. Yeah, um, he loved developing players, working with them. He really didn't build the teams. That was more the front office. Um, and as time went on, um, as the PCL became more subservient to the majors and had a little less money, it was more about uh, getting players and finishing them for sale to the majors rather than trying to win in the Coast League. And after a while, I think got a little tired of that, and then he had a falling out with the SEALs manager after Charlie Graham, who was kind of his mentor, passed away. Uh, control of the team fell into this uh, man named Paul Fagan, who had married into the Crocker Bank family. Mm-hmm. And uh, was uh, had a lot of land in Hawaii, and Fagan had dreams of becoming of taking the PCL Major League. And once that didn't happen, he soured on the whole thing, torpedoed the team, and ended up firing O'Doul in 1951 after O'Doul had managed the Seals for 17 years. Mm. Hey, I want to do a little word or phrase association with you in relation to Lefty O'Doul. So I'll just give you the name of the person or the phrase and tell me what comes to mind in regards to Lefty. George Hallis. Well, George Hallis uh, was a teammate. Uh, He and O'Doul joined the Yankees at the same time in 1919. uh, And they were kind of the two star young players in camp that year. And Hallis uh, was actually supposed to be the starting right fielder, ended up pulling a muscle in his hip, uh, and his major league career was gone after 22 at-bats. And by the end of the year, he'd retired to become um, eventually owner of the team that eventually became the Chicago Bears and, of course, uh, became a, a football Hall of Famer. Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy um, was really an interesting figure for – for lefty, 
Again, he uh, lefty was the only player that William Wrigley ever personally acquired for the Chicago Cubs in 1926. And O'Doul went to training camp with Chicago and McCarthy was the brand new manager, cut him in 1926. Uh, he didn't like him and sent him back to the coast league mm-hmm. and uh, lefty always kept Joe in his mind. And in 1930, when he had the chance to knock the Cubs out of the pennant, Lefty uh, was injured at the time. He could basically only pinch hit. But Mm. two days in a row, he hit home runs to beat the Phillies. I mean, to beat for the Phillies to beat the Cubs, Mm -hmm. knock them out of the pennant race. And the home run he hit, it was a walk-off home run that really knocked them out. He went running around the bases screaming at Joe McCarthy, there goes your gold, Joe McCarthy. (laughs) Uh, He never forgot about that. You referred to this earlier in the show? Man in the green suit. That's what he was known as. Uh, that was one of his nicknames. Uh, and in fact, it's on his, uh, it's, a, it's part of his epitaph on his uh, tombstone. He was known, uh, again, he, he was known as an Irishman, even though he really wasn't. Uh, he was part Irish, but he was more German and French. Uh, but he, he played up the Irish, and maybe part of that was the superstition <laughs> with the uh, you know, mm-hmm. leprechauns and shamrocks and all that. Mm-hmm. But um, green was his lucky color. And he would, uh, again, put, to put himself in that frame of mind, he, he wore uh, green suits, shirts, ties, everything, playing that up. And uh, that started really in Philadelphia. And from then on, uh, that was one of his big nicknames, known as the man in the green suit. The batting glove. So with Brooklyn, uh, he hurt his hand early in uh, one spring training. And uh, when he came back, he used a golf glove on his hand, uh, actually in a game, uh, which he uh, helped cushion. He had hurt the heel of his hand, and that helped cushion uh, the pain, uh, cushion it and, and ease the pain. He was able to swing, and so he was, uh, if you look, he's actually historically the first man to use a batting glove in a major league game. There you go. You also referred to this uh, earlier in the show that he was not only a great hitting coach, he was a great pitching coach as well. So Ryan Duran. Ryan Duran uh, was kind of on his, uh, on his way out of baseball when Lefty was managing him in Vancouver in uh, 1956. Um, I think Ryan was 27 at the time and had uh, pitched two major league innings and started off this season with Lefty. I think he was one and six, something like that. And Lefty took him aside one day and, and basically told him to throw high and tight and kept telling him to throw higher and tighter until he threw one up on the screen. <laughs> then he said, now throw low and away. And he kept throwing, and Duran would just get angrier and angrier, and he threw throw further away until he threw it in the dirt. And then Duran took a ball and practically threw it out of the stadium. And Odell said, that's it. You've done it. You know. And then he showed him what his footwork, where his feet had been. You know, He showed him on the mound, and he made him realize that footwork was into it. He said, Ryan Duran said he was the first guy who ever showed me how to pitch. 
and mm-hmm. he was almost immediately successful. He struck out 17 guys in his next start against one of the best <laughs> wow. offensive teams of all time in the PCL. I think wow. he walked one guy. Wow. And Duran, uh, I, I was able to interview uh, Duran briefly not too long before his death, and uh, he really gave a lot of credit to, to Lefty. Uh, Larry Jansen was another guy who uh, really credited Lefty a lot with uh, his pitching success. And there were others. I have two more for you here. Mo Berg. So he went over uh, to Japan with Mo Berg both in 19, well, in 1931, uh, Mo Berg was on that team, uh, the first all-star team that went to Japan. In 32, they went over and coached the college players. And again, in 34, Mo Berg was also there. And 34 was the time that he went up to the top of the hospital in Tokyo and took pictures of Tokyo Bay at a time when he supposedly wasn't playing because he was sick. So he was sneaking off to take photos. Mm-hmm. In 32, what's interesting is uh, when Lefty was with Moberg, Lefty was taking pictures of Tokyo Bay and actually got arrested mm-hmm. uh, for doing so. And he also made films that he sent to the army. He doesn't, nobody knows whether they were ever used, but he was mm-hmm. kind of hoping they were. And then there's a famous story about uh, them sitting in a restaurant with t- Ted Lyons and Moberg uh, wrote out phonetically something for the Japanese uh, waitress to say. It was something along the lines of uh, Lefty O'Doul has, is so ugly he's going hit, to get hit by a baseball and get killed someday. <laughs> and, and you know, he got the waitress to say it, and she didn't even understand what she was saying. So it's kind of a famous story. The old professor, Casey Stengel. He had a real rivalry with Stengel. In uh, 1946, Casey uh, was coming off a pretty good season, and the Oakland Oaks hired him. And Oakland and San Francisco had tremendous rivalries. Um, the Oakland fans were uh, never liked O'Doul. They would uh, regularly hang him in effigy and then uh, parade the uh, the body of O'Doul in a coffin around the, <laughs> around the stands. So... Uh, and he would always do things to irritate them. When Casey came, Casey kind of left. He was kind of the symbol of the coast league mm-hmm. until Casey got there. He had, you know, left. He always had a great rapport with reporters. And uh, when Casey came, he did too. And Casey had managed in the majors and left. He hadn't. So left. He really saw uh, Casey as a, as a rival. You had a natural rival between San Francisco and Oakland um, teams would play a week at a time against each other. So they had plenty of time to get into fights and things like that. And uh, so lefty took great pleasure in, in winning the pennant in 1946 and beating out Casey, but Casey returned the favor and won in 1948, which, uh, his success there launched him into his hall of fame career as a manager with the Yankees who hired him in 1949. There was a lot or there has been a lot of push for Lefty to be enshrined in Cooperstown, and, and we, 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 we touched upon that, but he just didn't play long enough. However, back in the early 2000s, he was enshrined into Japan's Baseball Hall of Fame. How deserved was that honor, and is there ever a shot he could get into Cooperstown? So um, there'd been a lot of efforts uh, dating back to the 1970s to look at getting Lefty in the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, but until the late 90s, uh, uh, I don't think any American, even though Americans had had some great success in Japan, none had been inducted into the uh, Japanese Hall of Fame. And Lefty ended up being the first as they created a category for contributors to the game of Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's noted there for uh, the tours that he undertook, especially the 49 tour, bringing the San Francisco Giants over in 1960. He took some Japanese players to spring training in, in the U.S. in 1951, all of the, and, and then helping found Japanese professional baseball. I mean, yeah, I think it's deserved, and I think – uh, if you look at Ichiro or Shohei Otani or um, Hideki Matsui and some of the other Japanese players, you draw a line back to it really goes back to Odul investing the time mm-hmm. into that country and making a case for them eventually playing in the majors. Almost right off, he was talking about eventually he wanted to see Japanese players play in the American major leagues. I mean, from the 1930s, he was talking about this. Mm-hmm. And so I think he laid the foundation for the Hideo Nomos and all of, all of those folks. So, yeah, I think it was deserved. As far as um, Cooperstown, I think his best shot is with the Buck O'Neill Award, which is kind of a con- contribution right. award. And there's been pushes for him on that. I think the next time that's up is in 2020. And I'd really like to see that happen uh, for his family. Um, and, and I think his legacy needs to be recognized. I, you know, one of the reasons that I undertook this book is I've done a lot of research on the Coast League. And he's a fascinating person and a great uh, subject for a biography. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I felt like in a lot of ways, he was arguably the most important baseball figure that hadn't had a true biography written about him. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, that legacy probably only in the last 10 to 12 years is really being recognized uh, because, uh, you know, there was only one Japanese player who came over until the mid nineties and really only uh, in the last 10, 15 years have there been a real uh, flood of them, uh, Japanese players playing here and opening Asia to the major leagues. So, and I think he had a lot to do with that, but unfortunately a lot of that happened after uh, he died in 1969. Right. Um, And, you know, also why I consider him a great topic for sports forgotten heroes. What to you was the most surprising thing that you discovered about Lefty O'Doul while you were writing the book? Um, I think it was just in how many ways – he impacted the game. Like I said, he was, in a lot of ways, he was a difficult person to get my hands around because there were so many areas. I mean, I knew he was a great hitting instructor and I knew he was a great hitter. Uh, I, I knew he'd gone to Japan, but I think, I think reading the impact of the Japanese view of that 49 tour probably surprised me the most. Um, you know, to really recognize how important that trip was, the impact that it had, and his role in it. I think um, I knew he'd gone over, but I think recognizing the impact of that and the ripple effect uh, on into today that that trip has had and that everybody's really kind of forgotten uh, about it, unfortunately. 
How ironic is it that with his relationship with Japan, Lefty O'Doul's date of death is December the 7th? <laughs> that is really amazing. Uh, you know, there are, there are some interesting, uh, you know, there's some interesting connections to Japan, including with uh, Horace Wilson, who was the first man who, who's credited as being the man who introduced baseball to Japan as an English professor in the 1870s. And, and so it just seems like Lefty kept coming back to, uh, there were always things either bringing him back to Japan or connecting him to Japan or interesting dates that, that seemed to hit that. It's almost like he was destined to be part of it. Hey, if someone wants to get a hold of your book, read your book, where can they get it? Um, you can get it. Uh, I know that uh, it can be ordered through Barnes & Noble, and it's in a lot of Barnes & Noble stores. Um, if it isn't carried, you can get it, or, of course, Amazon or through the publisher, University of Nebraska Press. Pretty much anywhere that uh, you buy books, you can order it if it's not on the shelf. Well, it's a terrific book, Dennis. Are you working on anything new? I'm doing some research on on uh, some different topics, uh, but nothing yet that's turned into uh, the next project. But uh, uh, I'm kind of interested in a guy named Turkey Mike Donlin, mm-hmm. uh, who's a turn of the century player who uh, ended up uh, ending up as an actor. Who was kind of interesting, but uh, just doing some research on different things and and haven't settled on a topic yet. Well, Dennis, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It has been a terrific uh, uh, episode. Learned so much about Lefty O'Doul. Your book is terrific. And, hey, I just want to thank you and hope you would consider coming back again if we find the right topic. Oh, I'd love to come back and, and talk again. Sure. Awesome. Again, Dennis, thank you so much. I can absolutely understand why Lefty has not been enshrined in Cooperstown as a player. After all, he played just six full seasons, appeared in just 970 games, and connected for only 1,140 hits. But he had an eye unlike anyone. In 1922, he had 32 homers and struck out only 19 times. In 1930, he smashed 22 home runs and struck out just 21 times. In 1932, he belted 21 homers and struck out just 20 times. He was a hitting machine. His 349 career batting average is the fourth best ever. But it's his overall contributions that really deserve merit, especially when you consider what he did in Japan. And maybe, just maybe, in 2020, when baseball elects its next class of contributors to the game, perhaps Lefty O'Doul will garner more support. For more information on Lefty, check out sportsfh.com. There I have links to his career stats and some interviews about him. And to read more about Lefty, get the book by Dennis, Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Greg Wolf, the director of Sabre's Bio Project, returns for a discussion on a guy who played under the shadow of one of the game's greats, Harmon Killebrew. Yes, we will look back at the career of Bob Allison. That's next time 
Again, thanks to my guest today, Dennis Snelling, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.